finishing up the 13th chapter this evening, beginning in verse 11. 11 through 14 is an admonition to the great incentive of obedience. You know, in this chapter we saw last week, he started out, obey the higher powers, for there is no power but God. And the powers are, are ordained by him. And so there was the admonition of obedience in verse 1. Then we don't read too far till there's the admonition uh, to pay tribute to Caesar. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, as the Lord said on one occasion, and unto God the things that are God's. And so we have a responsibility there of obedience. And then he gets into loving one another uh, in the latter verses 9 through 9 and 10 and obeying the the law in loving one another because on that on, on love <clears throat> as Jesus stated to the Jews in his argument with them they asked him what's the greatest commandment he said love God and love, uh, love, uh, love your neighbor seconds like unto it love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus said, Upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. So the law is the resolve of love. Law is the issue that comes forth from love. Incidentally, parents, if you love your children, you'll do everything to cause them uh, to bring about obedience to your law in the home. Because if they grow up not loving and obeying your law, they want the government and they want the Lord and they'll go to hell. Along with probably going to prison in the meantime. That's a result of not teaching children uh, this love that is discussed here. That's the highest of all things. Because out of it flows obedience to law. Well, he finishes up this 13th chapter beginning in verse 11 and going through 14 with uh, the continuation of this great incentive to continue to live the life of obedience. That's the thing we have to decide to do. That's our part in all of this. <laughs> so the great incentive in chapter 3, verse 11 to 14 has five points. The first verse, verse 11, makes a solemn appeal to a clear explanation. The solemn appeal is knowing that you wake out of sleep. Uh, so the uh, urgent appeal here is to uh, wait for me, watch for me, be vigil. Uh, it talks of vigilant, uh, vigilly. And the, the clear explanation uh, on reason for that is that salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And so the, uh, the necessity of salvation, or the nearness of salvation, the awareness that the salvation uh, uh, believed is working out, uh, it's drawing near uh, its end, uh, is the reason to continue to live the life of obedience. <clears throat> in verse 12 there's a glorious expectation 
He says the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Uh, now I'm personally persuaded that he's not talking about a particular day when he says the day is at hand. He's simply contrasting night and day as the scripture do in many places. Night being darkness, sin, uh, deception, ill thinking, ill working. And the day is, the, is the, uh, the daylight when you can see by scripture what's right and wrong, what's what obedience consists of. The brethren in Rome, all living, uh, will continue to live for a while in a dark situation uh, until A.D. 70. But the day is at hand. The day dawns, so he's simply saying, in spite of the darkness of the night around you, you continue to labor on for the day is at hand. At midnight, you may find yourself in prison, hands and feet in stocks to the Roman government. Go ahead and sing praises with the fellow next to you, for the day is at hand. I mean, no matter how dark the hour is, and particularly there in Rome at that time, what's the revelation? The day is at hand. The day of light, the day when the night is over, the day when the trouble is past. <coughs> then he gives uh, a, a practical exhortation in the last part of verse 12 and 13. And notice here that the practical exhortation is found in three imperatives. In the middle part of verse 12, it says, cast, all, uh, cast off the works of darkness. In the last part of verse 12, it says, put on the armor of light. And then verse 13 says, walk becomingly. And then 14 Verse 14 gives another one, uh, but we're going to give it another title. And so there's really four incentives from verse 12b through 14. And that is cast off, put on, walk, and put on. Uh, That you'll find in them verses. I think the last one is a summary. That's why it's separated from the verse 3. The thing we're to cast off is the works of darkness, and the thing to put on is the armor of light. That is, light as an armor. We're to put on light as an armor. Remember Ephesians 6? That all that armor can be uh, characterized by simply uh, the provision that God has made for the Christian through Jesus and through the Word both of which are depicted as the light of the world. (coughs) Jesus uh, and the Word and the Christian, all three are called in Scripture the light of the world, aren't they? We're the light of the world. We're a candle set on a hill that can't be hid. Jesus is the light of the world. The Word is the light of the world. 
So if we put on the armor of light, we put on Jesus. And that's why verse 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus at the last of the verse 14. So what do we wear as armor? Uh, well, that's a bad question. Who do we wear as armor? It's not what, it's who. You see, that's the question. Uh, you go read Ephesians 6 again and see that every piece of that armor that you put on is Jesus. The breastplate of righteousness. Who's the only one that's right and righteous? Jesus. <coughs> Our loins are to be girded with truth, Ephesians 6 says. Who is that truth and whose is it? It's the Lord because He came to, to uh, declare truth. It's Jesus. Our feet are to be shod with the gospel of peace. Who is our peace? Jesus. Our helmet clad with uh, salvation. And is that not also a question of who? The only thing that is not literally Jesus is that which we wield in our right or left hand, depending on which handed you are. And that is the sword of the Spirit. The rest of it, in reality, is your putting on of Jesus in your life. Uh, just a different way of discussing uh, the potential and the provision of Jesus. He's our helmet, our hope. He's our breastplate of righteousness. Uh, he's our feet. So, uh, he's our sandals, shod, uh, shod with them sandals that are uh, able and and, and uh, willing to go with the gospel of peace. To stand in the gap when it's necessary. In verse 13, he said, Let us walk becomingly as in the day. But in the middle of the night, that is far spent, in light of the fact that day is at hand. Uh, how are you to walk as if it were already day? So in this dark world that we live in, in the dark world of Rome at that time, the admonition is to the fact that we walk what kind of walk? The walk of faith uh, as it were already day. Somebody says, well, I can't see where I'm walking. Well, the Lord has already said it's clear. So just walk like it was. That's what he's saying. You walk in this dark room as if it were day. The Lord has said it. Fully, solidly ahead. Fully clear and fully level. Just walk. And so you walk becomingly as in the way that is attractive. You walk as in the day and not in the night. To walk in the night would heal in this passage talking about people who do walk in the night and riding and partying and sensuality and all of that and night stands for that in this context now he discusses the negative side of that in the rest of verse 13 he says not in reveling and drunkenness not in cambering and, and wantonness not in strife and jealousy and so every time that you read something like this in the New Testament you can mark it down that those are the particular problems in the environment in which they lived. Uh, that's the way you'd 
do if you were writing an epistle to a congregation and you were fully aware of where they their problems were and you wanted to speak uh, of some things that they should avoid uh, would you discuss the things that were their problems well absolutely you're you negatively uh, you naturally would uh, and so if if I were writing to a people whose problem was covetousness, I wouldn't say be aware of fornication. That's not their problem. And so here are the three, here are their problems. It's a dark night in Rome, in the city of Rome. For in the city of Rome, you have characterized re, uh, re, reveling. That means orgies and parties drunkenness, cambering, that means sleeping around, wantonness, and that is the desire to have things that are luxurious in their nature, strife and jealousy, and of course, if you and I ever lived in, uh, in a nation where those things were problems, then we would want to remember this text, wouldn't we? So he writes to them and uh, gives them an admonition and a warning to walk circumspectly because of the problems that they're having there in Rome. And he names them. Uh, and then in verse 14, verse 14 is uh, complete provision. Positively, he says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, wear Jesus as your cloak. And negatively, he says, do not give the sinful nature one moment of forethought. He says, you do not make provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Sufficient unto every day is the evil thereof. And so don't make provisions for the flesh. Now, will the flesh occasionally rise its ugly head and, and say, I'm still here? Yes, it will. It will keep you aware of the fact, uh, but don't plan on it. Don't sit down at night and plan on how you're going to let the flesh fulfill its lusts, lusts tomorrow. You make no occasion for the fulfillment of the flesh, and the flesh will occasionally fulfill itself, but you just don't make any occasion for the fulfillment of the flesh. That's not your drive. That's not your walk. And so there's a thing that he has to say in way of the great incentive toward godly living. <clears throat> and then in chapter 14, uh, he begins to talk about consecration and the weaker brother. Chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13 he will deal with his subject. He starts out in the first 12 verses of chapter 14 uh, talking about not judging others. Do not judge others. One of our biggest problems, I think, is judging one another. Not accepting one another, judging one another. Now there's things that someone might believe that we object to. But if he's a weaker brother as he's going to discuss here in the context, we don't have that right. 
he'll answer to his own master uh, uh, if he's wrong. Well, anyway, we'll get into the text and see it a little clearer, I think. So I believe in the modern environment in which we live, uh, chapter 14, verse 1 to 15, 13, uh, are as important a text as is found in all of God's Word. There are three sections in this. Chapter 14, 1 through 12 says, Do not judge others. You just don't judge others. Now, we'll talk about that other in, others in a minute. You know, I'm speaking there without exception when there may be an exception. In chapter 14, verse 13 through 23, he says, Do not tempt others. Okay, so you don't judge others, you don't tempt others, you don't set temptation before them. At chapter 15, in, the, in those first 13 verses, he says, help others. So there's three parts to this study here, beginning in chapter 14. So this is how you work with others. Don't judge others, don't tempt others, and help others. Now in chapter 14, verse 1 through 12, where we're at right now, uh, we have a discussion of the strong and the weak brethren. Now you understand when we say strong and weak, it probably would be better to put ER after each of those words, stronger and weaker. The stronger and the weaker brother. So when we say strong and weak, that's what we mean. We don't mean there are two classes. We mean there is a graduated level of Christian uh, from the first to the last of the weaker to the stronger. That's what that's saying. And this text, uh, 14, 1 through 15, 13, has given me a concept of the kingdom I didn't used to have and that is that the kingdom is really composed of a long line of men and women, every one of which has someone below them and every one of which has someone above them. And so we've got, each one of us has in our uh, maturity, and because of our maturity, we have someone below us that's more immature than we are and we have someone above us that is uh, more stronger than we are, more mature in Christianity. But in all of this, we don't have a right to judge one another. And he'll finish out in chapter 15, verse 1 through 13, talking about how we need to help one another rather than judge. It's not our business to judge. So, <clears throat> there are grateful for the one above them because they're holding their hand. I'm grateful for those that are above me that has held my hand for years. And they're needful for the one below them. And so I have a responsibility. I'm grateful for the hand that I've held that has raised me up in understanding and by pattern of life that they've given me, the example of their lives. But I also have a responsibility to those that's below me. And so I have one hand holding on to those above me, the stronger brother, and I have a hand down to help the weaker brother. 
I think you get the picture. But it's a picture that you all very often see in the church. Mostly you see judgment, judgmental people that's ready to condemn. And not, they're not there to help, they're there to condemn. Somehow they got the idea that God give them a marshal's badge to enforce the law of God's word. All right, so uh, uh, they're being helped by the one above, and they're being uh, they're helping the one below, and at the top uh, of that line stands Jesus, pulling them up into heaven one at a time. And so we all hang on to the hand of Jesus, as it were, and I hang on also to the hand of the one that's in the hand of Jesus, and I'm in his hand as he lifts me up in understanding and by his example of life, as is patterned according to uh, the life of Christ. Now that's the kingdom of God. That's his kingdom. That's the nature. Someone you... Uh, Somewhere, you along, you're along that line somewhere. Either, uh, see, all of us are the weaker brother to somebody, and all of us are the stronger brother to somebody. All right, and until we stand redeemed in the body, soul, and spirit, we're going to be just part of a long line being helped and helping, being helped by one hand and helping others below us with the other. And that's what 14.1 through 15.13 will teach. It will do away with pride, but at the same time it will build confidence. You know, a lot of times when we uh, destroy pride, we do away with confidence. A fine horse has only been broken to the bridle. He's not been broken in spirit. He's just been broken to the to the rider. He still has all of the wild horse in him that once he had. He's just now under control. That's the idea of the Christian. And that's what meekness is, is power under control. God said it Moses in the Old Testament. Although he, he finally broke a few times, as humans do, uh, he saw that the responsibility was so awesome that he had and so uh, heart-rendering that he cried out to God, did I give birth to all these people that I ought to be responsible for them? Because God made him responsible. He broke as a man. But still in all, God testified that he was the meekest man that ever lived. And meek means strength under control. Now he's dealing with being meek here, of submitting oneself to God and therefore being lowly toward others. The only reason we suffer others is on behalf of, uh, of God, because he made them. He, he desires them. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Now 14, 1 through 12, he deals with the fact that stronger men are to receive weaker men. 
Now, pride won't allow you to do that. Humility will. Now, notice what he said. But him that is weak in faith. Notice he didn't say in the faith. Uh, he's not talking about a liberal or somebody who doubts Jesus was raised from the dead. He's not talking about that at all. He's not talking about asceticism. He's not talking about uh, northerism. But he's just talking about a person whose personal faith is weak in certain areas. So he's not talking about the faith. James talked about the faith. James, not James, Jude 3. Jude said that he wrote those things that they earnestly contend to admonish them to earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered unto the saints. Well, this is not discussing the faith. It's talking about a man's personal faith. There's things of your own personal faith that you believe in that is not going to harm you with God or anybody else. And you have a right to do that. Like Christmas. Like other <coughs> holidays that maybe you don't believe in. That's fine. You have that right. But the man who does have it does believe in them, has his right also. It doesn't mean he believes in those days. It just means that he set them aside to honor God. Is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with me honoring God any day of the year? What about Christmas, that 20, 25th? <laughs> Can I do that? It doesn't mean that I buy into all of the uh, conflab of men over the centuries about Christmas, about that day. Doesn't mean that at all. Anyway, he's going to discuss this a little bit for us here. Uh, so, he's just talking about a person whose personal faith, not the faith, but a personal faith, is weak in certain areas. He says, Him that is weak in faith, receive ye, yet not to doubtful disputation. <clears throat> and I hope we all read that and practice it because I may be the weaker brother in your house one of these days and there's one thing that's not going to help me and that is a debate I don't want you to come up against me in some uh, hateful uh, proud debate I want you to deal with me as a brother if I'm doing something that's going to cost my soul and cut me off from God, you need to talk to me about it, and I want you to. But don't judge me in matters that I have a right to do that may not be uh, right for you. A debate is just not going to help me. And so if I'm there and I'm the weaker brother, would you remember this text when you're dealing with me? You're obligated to receive me and not to dispensation of scruples. <clears throat> now, if, an uns uh, if I'm uns uh, unscriptural, then quote me the passage, but in my, if my opinion happens to be different from yours, don't make your opinion inspired. And that's what sometimes we do. 
Just remember the Word of God is inspired and not your understanding of it. Your understanding of the Word is not inspired. Now suppose I become uh, of the uh, conviction that men ought to wear beards to be faithful, to be faithful Christians. And I come to your house, uh, don't knock me in the head and shave me because that's uh, incidental, isn't it? Suppose I become convicted that women must wear outside the house with a veil. Well, that's all right, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with wearing a veil? Not a thing, is there? You know any scripture that says the opposite? No. Can a woman go to heaven wearing a veil? And so that's probably another incidental matter, isn't it? <clears throat> or suppose I am a new convert and I believe Easter was the very day the Lord was raised. And I believe December the 25th was the very day he was born. And so on December the 25th, uh, I'm celebrating the Lord's birth in a special way. You think I'm going to go to hell for doing that? Because who am I honoring? Who am I uh, set aside that day to, uh, in a special way to worship? The Lord. Is anything wrong in that? You reckon that's a sin? Uh, I'm not doing that for justification. You see, whether I celebrate Christmas or not has nothing to do with my justification at all. I know what justifies me, the blood of Jesus, and that alone, by itself, alone, justifies me. Suppose I say to my family, we're going to set aside <coughs> July the 4th, and on that day, we're not going to shoot, shoot off fireworks. We're not going to go picnicking. We're not going to the lake. But we're just going to gather around our kitchen table and open the Bible and praise God for our freedom in Jesus. Now we're going to set aside that day and celebrate it that way every year. Somebody says, well, that's not mature. Mature or not, is it wrong? Absolutely not. But we tend to judge one another on these matters. Would it be wrong for me to do that every July the 4th? Well, I can do that every 3rd or 2nd or 4th. Suppose I wanted to do that July the 4th. Now, how would you convict me of that being wrong? All those things are lawful, aren't they? Nothing wrong with them. Now, they may not be expedient for you, but who are you to judge expediency for me? That's the point. You're to accept me as a brother. If I don't believe in Christmas, I don't celebrate Christmas, I, I, I repudiate against it. That's my prerogative. That's my faith. But what about the guy that does celebrate Christmas? I'm to recognize him as a brother that was justified, not because he didn't uh, reject Christmas, 
but because he accepted Christ, which is his justification. And so, Paul is talking here about not judging one another, being careful in our decision-making with one another. But we don't have a right to judge one another. He'll answer or fall. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll stand before his own maker uh, and be judged. So who are you to judge expediency for me? And that's Paul's point here. You know, that might be good because that would give us at least one day we study with our family. Uh, he says to receive him, but not to argue about his opinion. And so there's matters of opinion. Uh, and then in verse 2 through 4, he talks, well, let me stop right there just a minute. One thing I wanted to bring out, years ago, I was working with a, I think it was a Jehovah Witness, it might have been a Seventh-day Adventist, I don't remember. I was just a boy, uh, and at lunch, this guy jumped all over me. He said, uh, do you celebrate Christmas? I said, yeah. You have a tree and you decorate it? I said, well, yeah, the kids like that. And right away came his condemnation. Uh, you worship trees. I said, how do you get the idea of worship trees? I like trees. I've got them in my yard. And what if I cut one down and bring it in the house? Is there sin in that? Where's, where's the sin? I like trees. So I turned the question to him. I said, you got some greenbacks in your wallet? Well, certainly. I said, then you worship money. Because, see, just because I had a tree in the house that was decorated, he concluded that I worshiped that thing. Well, that was his judgment. Now, I wasn't worshiping no trees. <laughs> but that's the way he judged me and was awful about it. We don't have that right. <clears throat> and then in verse 2 through 4, he talks about the first uh, difference and its adjustment. Now everything you've got, uh, you you've got a, everything. Every time you've got a stronger brother and a weaker brother, there are going to be some decisions of scruples. The stronger brother can do some things that the weaker brother cannot do. He says, "One man has faith to eat all things, but he that." Uh, is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth, that is, in all things, set it not him that eateth not. In other words, don't judge him. What do you suppose is under discussion here? Uh, that they're eating and not eating. Well, it's meats offered to idols is what's being discussed. Meats offered to idols. Now the stronger brother recognizes that meat is for the belly, as Paul said one time, and the belly is for meat. Makes no difference. So he can eat of meat even if it's been offered to idols. So you can eat only meat if you don't look toward the idol that is sacrificed to. The same as you can embrace uh, Christ, uh, Christmas 
and enjoy the day and, uh, and sing the song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And I can have the hair stand up on the back of my neck as I hear that song sang uh, all day and all week before and after. What's wrong in that? Nothing. But was it the day that Jesus was born? No. It don't have to be. Does that mean because I celebrate that day that I'm celebrating all that Christmas stands for? No. <laughs> no way. No way. But in my conscience, I have set that day for my family as a day of praising God and rejoicing that His name is being sounded throughout the world, that His cross is being remembered throughout the world, that salvation hangs in the balance, and men are beginning to hear about deliverance and salvation to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord, the Master, the King of kings and Lord of lords has come. Now, if you can't get excited about that song on that day, and that's generally what it represents, <laughs> there's something wrong with you, even though that wasn't his birthday. And we have a tendency to judge everybody else that does that. We're a judgmental people. Now, Paul says, he that is weak in the faith can't do that because what will he be constantly think of while he's eating the meat that's been offered to idols here? Well, he'll be thinking about the idols, won't he? And he'll think, man, this is holy meat offered to that idol. Uh, am I worshiping that idol will be his question because of his weakness and understanding. He's a weaker brother. He may not come right out and say, I am worshiping that idol, but there will be a question in his mind. Am I worshiping that idol? And so he shouldn't eat, should he? Uh, he should eat that day only herbs, and that's what that text brings out. One man eats meat, another eats herbs. <coughs> now in the first century in the Gentile cities, if you didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, you better not eat any meat you haven't raised because whatever's been sold up there in the, in the shambles has been offered to idols is the idea. Because uh, if you buy it in the shambles, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9 and 10, it would say it's probably been offered to idols. Uh, shambles is the marketplace, see, like Safeway and the the mall and places like that. If you buy it in the marketplace, the chances are at least nine out of ten that it's been offered to idols. Even in some areas of that country today, that's true. Because meat just not as stable in their diet and they're poor people. And the only time they can uh, afford to buy meat is when it's meat that has been offered to idols and the priests are selling it the next day. They got nothing involved, so whatever they make out of it is their profit. And a cut rate because it didn't cost them anything. And so the poor people are able on the day after a great sacrifice day, uh, there's no way to keep that meat, so 
uh, they got to sell it uh, all in the next day or two before it spoils. And so it's pretty cheap about the third day when the flies begin to blow on it uh, somewhat. It's fairly cheap. And so the poor can afford to go down and buy it. And so the fellow that is strong uh, eats all things. Uh, but he that is weak eateth herbs. That's what Paul said there, verse 11. <coughs> or verse Verse 1. Verse 3. Now don't let the strong fellow that eats set it not, him that eats not. And let not him that eats not judge him that eats. For God hath received him. Now what is the reception of God to you and I, to the world? He receives us through who? He's a person has a name called Jesus. He's our justification, not our actions of abstaining from Christmas or from this holiday or whatever we I have a personal faith of. And yet, because I have that personal faith, I don't have a right to uh, brand it on you. If the scripture don't teach it, then I'm going to back off and leave it alone. All right. So who has God received in this verse? Both fellows. He's received the stronger brother and the weaker brother. Uh, and their reception by God was not because one of them eat meat or not because the other one refused to eat meat. So don't be judging one another in these areas. And a stronger brother is not to look down his nose at the weaker brother and say, he's a stupid fellow. If he knows better, He'd eat meat. And the other fellow is not to say idol worshiper because the Lord has received them both. The Lord's received them. Verse 4. Who art thou that judges the servant of another? And that's what we're doing a lot of times. We set ourselves up as a judge. Judging somebody else's servant. God's servant. We don't have that right. We're to help one another. That's how he'll finish out in chapter 15. All right. So, who art thou that judges the servant of another? To his own Lord he stands, standeth, or falleth. So stay out of his business. Don't be judging him. Leave it alone. It's God that will judge you. Yea, he shall be made to stand. Now, He'll be made to stand. Who's going to make him able to stand? Is God? Does God love the weaker brother that is uh, in ignorance, uh, doing or not doing things, and he's condemning his brother for eating, eating meats or practicing Christmas or the Fourth of July? Who's able to make him stand? God is. Isn't he walking with God in First John 1, 7? He's walking hand in hand. Here he is in all of his ignorance. He's learned that Jesus is Lord. He's confessed it, acknowledged it, and has been baptized into Christ where there's no condemnation, Romans 8, 1. So consequently, is he a son of God? Yes, he is. Is he a dumb son of God? Yes, he is. He's your brother. 
help him. Next time you see a little fella like we have in the building here running around, just recognize that there's a little fella that needs to put his hand in the hand of someone else and be led mother and father to start with and then God. You don't condemn him. You lead him. You love him. All right, so he should be able to stand, whether he's a weak brother or a strong brother. <clears throat> what did Paul tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 8? You remember he started to deal with the problems in Corinth, but before he did, he told them how precious they really were. He addressed his letter to the church of God in Corinth. They, was they read that letter? The old boy living with his father's wife. At that moment before he uh, learned different and repented, he looked at that, and I'm sure he said like the rest of them, boy, look at there, Paul, the great apostle, sees us as God's church. And then Paul went in to tell them how they were justified, sanctified, and all the blessings that they had in Christ, that they had everything that God had to give them, all knowledge and wisdom. They weren't using it, but they had it. They had it available. And he built those people up and put them on a pedestal with the Word of God before he ever dealt with the problems that they had. Because you know 1 Corinthians letter, they had 17 major problems. One of them was this guy living with his father and wife. And yet Paul addressed him along with the rest of them at Corinth and declared that he was justified, sanctified, and God would see him through to the day of Christ. Now that didn't mean he was justified in what he was doing. He needed to repent, and he did. But nevertheless, he was a son of God that was ignorant about some things. If you come out of idolatry and immorality and uh, <laughs> paganism as those people did there at Corinth. You remember that uh, converged at Corinth was people of the world because there was an isthmus there through which the ships delivered their goods from east to west, from west to east. So you, it was like New York City. You had people of all nations gathered there. What do you got when you got people of all nations? You got concepts and ideas and religious concepts from all the nations of the world. They had them at Corinth. They had over 4,500 priestesses that went out daily on their registered roster and solicited sexual acts men for sexual acts on the altar to the goddess Diana, the goddess of sex. Now that's how corrupt these people were that were taught the gospel, obeyed it, and were justified, sanctified, and brought into Christ. And Paul builds them up in that first chapter. Tells them who they are. They're the church of God. With all of their problems, because problems can be uh, taught against and repented of. But they were still the children of God. And Paul built them up before he began to chastise them for the things that were wrong amongst them that they might repent of. But notice what he said in verse 8. 
God is able and will see you through the day of Christ. Who's running interference for old Merle, old Jack, old Jill? Who's running interference behind the curtain on the stage of life? God is, and he'll see to our salvation if we'll humble ourselves under his mighty hand that we studied this morning. And when we do, he'll see us through. And that's what Paul said here. The Lord has power to make him stand. And so in the matter of eating meat or not eating meat, Paul says it's fine. Eat it. Don't eat it. That's fine. And don't anybody be judgmental of the other fellow's practice. Can you think of anything that might be parallel to that today? Well, how about movies or TV? Let's go into that for a moment and see a parallel. <clears throat> Some won't watch it. Saying the thing is ungodly if you watch it. Well, now that's their personal faith. Do they have a right to get up in the pulpit and preach that to the congregation, to the family of God? No, they do not. No, they do not. Suppose a weaker brother says, you and me come out of the theater and uh, you or me come out of the theater and said they were offended. We could correctly reply, reply with, you mean I caused you to stumble? Because the word offend in the New Testament means cause to stumble, causing someone else to stumble. It doesn't mean to make mad or upset. It means to cause to stumble. Someone says, I don't think uh, you ought to go to movies. And we may agree in about 98% of the time. But if I determine I want to see a particular movie for one reason or another, I haven't necessarily caused anyone to stumble. But suppose a weak brother confronts me and says, it's downright ungodly to go to a particular movie. And I say, okay. I won't. If you'll admit one thing, and that is that you're the weaker brother, uh, and most likely he will not admit to being the weaker brother, but will affirm that he's the stronger brother. Well, that's fine, but now you've got to receive me and not to doubtful disputation. Now, that's, <coughs> that's how that thing works. If you're the stronger brother, then you're obligated to receive me. The weaker brother attending a movie about every six months when a decent one is rated G comes along. And if you're the weaker brother, uh, then I'm really going to cause to stumble attending that G rated movie two or three times a year. Then I'll forego the G rated movies because I'm not going to cause you to stumble. But meanwhile, if both of us consider ourselves a stronger brother or if you consider yourself a stronger brother and my practice is beneath you then you you've got to receive me and not to argue about my decision uh, and scruples uh, that would bring about a lot of peace wouldn't it if we would practice that we don't judge one another the Lord is leading all of us He's feeding all of us as we walk with him. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, in the truth of God's word, we're walking with him. 
We're learning like a little child does. We stumble and fall and we cry because we didn't intend to fall, but we fall. And the admonition of God in love is, get up, son. It ain't all over. You're not hurt that bad. <coughs> and we continue to walk with God. But we're walking with God. And as we walk with God, we're walking with one another. But we don't have a right to judge one another. Because sooner or later, God will mature that weaker brother uh, and strengthen him in the areas where he's weak. I don't have to worry about that. I just need to love him. All right. Now, there's a second problem then, and this one is a little bit more germane to the 20th century, that we, the 21st century that we live in. There's a second uh, difference, and it's adjustment in verse 5. He says, One man esteemeth one day above another, Another esteemeth every day alike. Let the fellow know that every day is alike. Is that what he said? No, he didn't. He said, let each man be fully assured in his own mind. Now, in my case, let me bring up uh, Christmas again. Christmas don't mean anything to me except I just rejoice in the Lord being recognized one more day, one more time. Whether that was the day he was born or not has nothing to do with it. It has to do with the fact that it's broadcast around the world, on the TV stations, in the movies, and everywhere. And it's saying about, what's wrong with that? And don't judge me in that. That's my decision. But I don't worship the day with all of its hang-ups that has been attached to it uh, from its concept. And so each man be fully assured in his own mind, Paul says. That says that it's not wrong to count one day as a particular holy day. Now that's not mature because uh, what's every day? A particular holy day. Uh, but it's not wrong. It's not <coughs> sinful to account one day as a particularly holy day. What would be the background of this? What day you reckon they're talking about? Well, here they're talking about the Sabbath day. <coughs> We're in the context now of the first century. We're back when Paul wrote this letter. We're looking at what he said here through uh, the eyes of a Jew at that time or a Gentile, but nevertheless a Christian of that era. So here's a Jew comes into Christ. 1,500 years of, of observing the Sabbath day is behind him in his history. What's he going to do for a while after he's obeyed the Lord, been baptized in Christ? What's he going to do for a while? He's going to observe the Sabbath day, isn't he? He's going to do so in ignorance, isn't he? Do we judge that brother? Or do we love him and offer a hand to help him up in understanding as we can without offending him? He may die observing the Sabbath day before he learns different. And if I'm in his house on the Sabbath day, I also will observe it with him. 
Not that it means anything, but that brother does. And the next day we'll eat the feast of the Lord and have a great time worshiping Jesus at the Lord's Supper. But we're going to keep the Sabbath day holy unto God. What does God say about that fellow? He says in verse 5, Let each man be fully assured in his own mind. And so why did the guy, why did the Jew observe the Sabbath? He observed it unto God. Is there anything wrong with that? Sabbath is merely a day, isn't it? The last day of the week. <coughs> is there anything wrong with that? Now he's still going to go observe the supper. And you're the stronger brother and you're in his house on the Sabbath. You're going to observe the uh, you're going to worship God on the Sabbath with him, even though it don't mean anything in regard to uh, the old system. But you're not going to offend him just because you don't believe in it. Let each man be fully assured in his own mind. I mean, uh, uh, never preach a, a, an anti-Christian sermon. Uh, we need to preach Jesus and let Jesus take care of this fella who loves him more than he loves life because he's going to leave behind him everything that is uh, against Jesus, isn't he? And if he really sees Christmas uh, for what it is, he will probably choose another day to honor the fact the Lord is being born into the world for him. But I think it would be good if we set aside some, sometimes a day with our family and said, let's think about today all day long. Think about the virgin birth of Jesus and its significance. That would be a terrible sin to do that, wouldn't it? And that's all you're doing. You're honoring God and the Lord Jesus on what we call what's been the world labels as Christmas, Christ Mass. But are we practicing the Catholic religion when we do that? No. No. We're honoring God in that day. Uh, I think we need to grow up. I don't mean that we leave behind sound doctrine at all. Because we're to earnestly contend for the faith, that's true. What I'm saying is we need to quit worrying about what others are doing and just check uh, our mind, is this wrong? Just because people that we don't agree with, that we think are wrong, do certain things, that doesn't mean that they're therefore wrong. They might be right and we might be wrong. We don't need to stand in judgment over other men's decisions and beliefs. If they're contrary to Scripture, what are we going to tell them? Well, we're going to tell them, here's this passage in the Bible. Would you explain this passage in light of your practice? That's the concept we'll approach them with. But if they're not contrary to Scripture, somebody says, didn't Paul say I'm a afraid of you Gentiles because they observe days and months and seasons and years. What's the background of that? 
And Paul is saying that. Why are they doing that? For, for justification's sake. They thought they were justified by doing that. And the problem there was legalism, not the days. Because Paul said right here that a fellow could observe a day and the Lord accepts him if he's fully assured in his own mind. But he's already handled that question in this book. The question of justification is by faith alone and not by works. And so when Paul said he was afraid of them because they observed months and days and seasons, uh, he wasn't condemning the months and days and seasons. He was condemning that they were doing these things for justification and have nothing to do with justification. Christmas has nothing to do with justification. It has to do with the praise that the Lord has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Now, brethren, there's nothing wrong with that. Not a thing. In fact, it's notable. It's noble, in my opinion. And that's my opinion. Merle 4, verse 6 again. That there's nothing wrong with that. Man can observe Christmas, parts of Christmas. Can I have a tree in the house? Yeah, I don't worship the tree. Can I put ornaments on that tree? Yes, I can. And I'm aware in the Old Testament that there was a practice of worshiping trees for one reason or another that was ornamented. That put up. That doesn't mean I'm doing that for that reason. So what if I have a tree in the front yard and my wife loses her beautiful ornament, her ring, in that tree and it's hanging there on a branch? Am I condemned by God when I don't even know what's on the tree? Huh? We get into ridiculous uh, things sometimes in judging others when the Lord accepts them because they were justified by the blood of Christ, not by their practice of what they do on a certain day. Our time's up. And here's a good place to stop, I guess. Now that we're all confused, <laughs> that I have confused you, and I'd sure like to borrow somebody's pen. Here it is, I never can seem to remember to bring a pen. Uh, keep it. You study these things out. I know I haven't been very clear. <coughs> I can't even read my notes correctly. <laughs> but keep in mind that if you don't have a scripture that condemns it in some principal way, then you need to back off from it. Because the Lord will see this man through to the day of Christ. That's what Paul told the Corinthians in verse 8 of chapter 1. And God will do that. He will see you through as He raises you, as He trains you. Is God a good teacher? The best. Definitely. Does He have all the information you need to live life successfully? Yes, He does. So, as Paul said to the Corinthians, you have all things. We have all things. He's given us all things, Peter said, uh, for Second uh, Peter 1.3. Through the knowledge uh, all things for life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that's called us to glory and virtue. So we have all things. 
and the Lord leading us, can we have difficulties and problems that the blood of Christ will cover until we learn better and repent of it? Yes. That's 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. And in that fellowship, as we walk with God, do we have sin? Evidently we do, because the last that verse says, and the blood of his son continually cleanses us from all sin. So while God is working with his young fellows and young girls in maturity, and raising them up in his family, in the kingdom, sure they got problems. God loves every one of them. And because they've been justified by the blood of Christ, they can have a lot of things wrong with them. And they can even die while they have those wrong concepts and still go to heaven. They're God's children. As long as they're willing to walk with Him. And maybe they don't have time before they die to walk with Him to learn that this is wrong that they're doing. Are they still God's children? Absolutely. If an infant, if a person who is steeped in sin, let me just put it that way. Suppose that he comes to our assembly and he has his ears open and he listens and he learns that Jesus is Lord. He confesses that and is baptized for the remission of sins. Is his sin remitted? Oh, but he better not commit another one because if he does, he's going to go to hell. That's the way we look at it. But what did Jesus die for at Calvary? Romans 3. He died for sin, period. For the sin problem. Every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed is already paid for. That's what the Bible clearly states in many ways in many places already been paid for. All that uh, the dollars of the world or the, the bad people of the world, all they got to do is acknowledge that and come forth with a confession that they believe Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Well, what if they die two days after they're baptized? They haven't learned that this is wrong in their life and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. They've had a whole lifetime of developing bad habits that need to be corrected, need to be repented of, but they haven't done it yet. It's only been two days or a week after they were baptized that they died. Did they go to heaven or hell? Well, the Bible declares they go to heaven because there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. All God requires me to walk with Him. Romans 8, verse 1. That's why we have assurance of salvation. Hmm? That's why we have assurance of salvation. Yeah, that's the assurance. My salvation is not up to me. I make the choice that I want to be saved. God takes care of the rest, and He'll see me through to the day of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. Again. Thank you for listening to me. So we'll begin about there next next time we meet.
<coughs> Let's all stand, sing our closing hymn. Following this hymn, consider yourself excused. Sweet hour. 